The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. We're going to be in Amos 8 this morning. Um, and uh, if, you're, if you're here, you don't have a Bible, there should be a, one around you uh, that you can grab. If you're here, you don't own one, we'd love to give it to you. Uh, we, it's our privilege, really, to preach it, to sing it, to stand on it, and then to give it away. So it would be our privilege for you to grab one. Uh, Amos 8. And um, listen, as we get to our text, I want to ask you something as we, as we get to this text. Think about this. Um, what does it take? To change? What does it take to snap out of the mundane, uh, to snap us out of some bad habits, and to wake us up and see, whoa, and to change? What does that take? And specifically, how often does it seem to have to take something big? Um, We see this in a lot of areas of life, but um, let's think about our health maybe. Uh, We know we should exercise more, you know, you should eat better, sleep better manage your stress better. We know these things, yet how often does it take a diagnosis to just go, oh, I got to make a change? What does it take? Maybe it's not, maybe it's not um, health. Maybe it's finances. You know you shouldn't overspend. You know you should save. You know the bills are coming. But sometimes it takes getting to that rock bottom before you say, oh, I need to make a change. What does it take to change Does it have to take something painful to get us to change? Dr. Henry Cloud uh, says it like this. We we change our behavior when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. I gotta ask, is is that true with our walk with the Lord? As a pastor, I ask all the time, God, what would it take to actually see change take place? I mean, that's what I'm praying for. And it's... At, at, at times, though, it seems easy to come to a service like this, um, to hear uh, um, the word of God preached and sang and to read scripture, to say hello and to say amen, and then to go and click back into the world world on Monday. And, and to uh, it, there's this sense that if we feel the sting of conviction from this in this moment today, there's a sense that we can say, okay, it's not, it's not a big deal. Just wait for it. Monday will happen, and then we'll get back to the real world. And there's this sense where, where we can kind of dabble in the things of God on Sunday, knowing real world, world is coming on Monday, to give a portion of ourselves to God on Sunday, but Monday's coming. And, and, and by the way, I'm not just saying this about you as a congregation. This is true for all the followers of Jesus, me, pastors. What will it take? to actually engage in this, and what would it take to change? See, the people of God in, um, in Amos that we're about to look at had everything going on. Uh, they, were, they were busy, led busy lives, but they had it all covered. They were secure, prosperous, and absolutely wicked. Absolutely wicked. And so what is it going to take to change their wicked hearts? Here's why I bring it up this morning. As we look at our text here today, we have so many things in common with the people of Israel in Amos. Um, We look and we live in a relatively prosperous community. 
relatively affluent. We, uh, we, like the people of Israel and Amos, have options and resources at our fingertips. And here's what that gives us the ability to do, to try to soothe ourselves and comfort ourselves when we start to feel pain or conviction or, um, in other words, we can distract ourselves knowing that, that we have a good life, good money, good homes, good neighborhoods, good schools. Obviously, this is a very broad brushstroke here in our community, very broad. It's not true for every person, but broadly speaking, we feel secure a lot like they did. We feel um, we have comfort and safety, and, and they, they, these things are serving us well. And so that means that no matter what conviction we feel in this, as we engage in the word of God, no matter what, um, we're able to kind of keep this at a distance and return to our stuff that happens, that we get to engage with on Monday. And in, in a very similar way, as we're about to see, this is very similar to what the people of Israel are dealing with in the book of Amos. I believe... Um, Amos 8 is a wake-up call as we look at Amos 8, and I believe it's going to take, I'm just going to put all the cards on the table here, it's going to take a lot more than pain to get us to change our hearts um, for this kind of heart change to happen. Um, this morning, as we look at our text, we're going to start with another vision. Another vision, um, if you remember, the first six chapters dealt with a lot of messages God was giving Amos a message to give to the people. But in chapter 7, we saw this shift where we started to see visions and um, where God was showing Amos things to give to the people. And in Amos 8, we have another one of these visions, and it is a weird one. Um, and it's, a, it's about a fruit basket. Um, if, if you look at our text, you see, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel, and I will never pass by them again. Okay, what on earth? We see here this, this uh, um, basket of summer fruit, and I think as we read this, we can think of this. And we're like, well, God, that's absolutely delightful <laughs> to be compared to that. I mean, that's wonderful. That's, that's delightful. Thank you, God. And then what happened in our text? It's like, Israel, you are this, and then he turns and says, and the end has come. And you're left with this going, what on earth is going on? Um, the Lord here is pointing to one thing, as beautiful as this fruit basket is. He's pointing to one thing, and that is that the, the fruit is ripe, meaning it's reached the end. The end. The time has come. It's been harvested. It's been placed in the basket. It's done. Um, commentators point to the fact that the gathering of fruit was the last harvest of the year, meaning it is done. So instead of reading this and thinking of this, more, more likely it's this. The end. Game over. It's done. We're given this vision of a fruit basket, and God tells you exactly what he means when he says it. He says, the end has come upon my people. It's done. I will never pass by them again. And this is not the first time we've seen this language. If you remember back in, in 7, when, we were, when Amos was sharing his vision of a plumb line, he says the same thing. He says, I will, I will never pass by them again, meaning the end is here. I'm not withholding. I'm not relenting anymore. The end is, is, is here. The fruit's picked. 
It's in the basket. The end. The end is here. And as we, as we look at this, it's from here that we get to one of the darkest texts in all of Amos, and I mean that. Um, this is really, really heavy, really awful. Actually, verse 3 says that the, the songs of the temple shall become wailings um, in that day, declares the Lord, meaning their worship services are going to turn from singing and joyful expression before God into just straight up weeping, wailing, loud cries, and then you get these three really dark statements. Really dark statements here. It says, so many dead bodies... They are thrown everywhere, silence. I told you it was going to be dark. Um, this is the scene of a battlefield, church. This is like a, a battle that has happened, bombs, guns, noises, clashing armies. But once the chaos of that battle is done, what are you left with? You're left with death and the crushing sound of silence. That's what we're left with here. The, the, the sound of silence, the sound of disaster. This is the, sh- the scene that God shows. And then he drills in and he says, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor to the land of the land to an end. Saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Okay, there is a lot going on here. As a whole, though, this is exactly what the whole book of Amos has been describing in the people. We've seen these charges leveled against them before. We see that they're trampling the poor, using them, abusing them, taking advantage of them, using the poor to get ahead, using them to step on, not loving people, using money, but using people in their love of money. And God says this again and again and again. And then listen, listen what he says. He says, while saying, when will the new moon be over? that we can get back to selling grain? And when will the Sabbath be over so we can get back to, to it? Listen to what they're saying here. Church, the new moon and the Sabbath are both meant for worship. They're both meant for worship. The new moon was this festival for worship. is this holiday that was set apart to God. The Sabbath is this regular time set apart for God for worship and rest. And here's the thing. In both the new moon and Sabbath, You were to to worship God, yes, but you were to cease from your work. In both of these cases, close the shops. It's meant for worship. Set aside, stop selling, and worship the God who provides. Rest in him. Stop working. And yet, what do you see in the people in both of these, these times? What you see is them saying, when will this be over and I can get back to work? You see that? When will this be over? When can I get back to my emails, get back to making that money, get back to selling, get back to the office? And and that's bad enough. I mean, I think many of us have had a workaholic or two in our lives, and we know that does not lead to gospel flourishing. Um, Ignoring rest, um, not being able to stop the production or performance to simply be and rest in Christ. Like, we know that's not good. We know that's not good. Um, We know that's counter to the gospel. But here's the thing. That's not really the fullness of what's happening here, is it? That's only a a little piece of it. If you look at this more, 
The people aren't just wanting to get back to their work. They're not only workaholics. The people here are desiring to get back to their sin. You see that? I mean, this is insane. They're in the midst of this time of worship, and they're pondering, when can we get back to taking advantage and sinning? When can we get back to it? They're not, they're not only wanting to get back to work, they're, they're wanting to get back to the things that God is accusing them of. They're wanting to get back to this. So first point of application this morning. If you're here right now and you're scheming of your next sin, stop it. Point number one, all right? That's what is basically saying here. That they're scheming, and, and listen to this, they're wanting to make the ephah small and the shekel great, deal deceitfully with false balances. We don't use these things, but here's the deal. What this is talking about is cheating, deceit, false balances here. It's, it's lying. Verse 6 says, to buy the poor for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, to sell the chaff of the wheat. What this is is a total disregard, a total disregard for people as the image bearers of God. A total disregard for the sanctity of human life. This is human trafficking. That's what this is, and our God hates that. We look at this, and it breaks the heart of God. Here's the thing. The poor were so poor that they could not afford shoes. And so they were selling themselves for the shoes that they needed, and the people selling it were profiting from it. You see it? I mean, this is dark. It's, it's gross. And worse... There were starving people, desperate for shoes and food, and when they came to them, they would, they would not only rip them off with false scales, they would not only force them into uh, selling themselves for shoes, but they would then give these starving people the absolute worst part of the wheat, the chaff, the trash, the stuff you take off to sell the good stuff. They'd sell that to them. This is abuse. This is a disregard for human life. This is just getting ahead, trampling on the least of these to make a profit. And this is what the heart of the people were dwelling on as they were in the temple singing their songs. This is what the people's heart was dwelling on as they were in their temple doing their worship duties. How corrupt is this? Not only distracted in worship, not only not focused on God, his word, his people, his glory, his praise, but they're sitting in church making provisions for the flesh and sin in the middle of the service. That's where we've come. That's where the people have come. So much wickedness here in corruption. And in the midst of this, when you hear me, it's, we're going to dwell on this a lot this morning, but in the midst of this, we need to understand the, the reality is Scripture is so clear. Our God is just. Our God is just. And that means that our God cares for hate sin, hates wickedness. Um, and that means that our God cares for the poor and the powerless. His heart is compassionate towards those who are broken, comes to the aid of those who are hurting. Our God is just. And that means that in his time and in his power, all things will be made right. All things. And here's the thing. That can be incredibly comforting and incredibly terrifying. If you're, if you're the one 
who is hurting and broken and been taken advantage of, that is wonderfully comforting news that your God is just. If you're the one who has been trampled on, been at the bottom of the pile, this is absolutely good news. And if that is you, I can say with absolute certainty because of the word of God that your God is just and he cares. You are not forgotten. Your God intercedes. That Jesus is the wounded healer sympathizing with us in our weakness. And even the even in the pain that you might be going through, I can say with full joy, you are not forgotten. Your God loves you. All that is wrong will be made right because our God is just. And there's so much comfort in that. And at the same time, in all of that comfort, there's also a, a little bit of terror. Because here's the thing. If you're the one inflicting the wrongs, taking advantage of, profiting from, contributing to the injustice, this is absolutely terrifying. It's terrifying to anyone who thinks, okay, God is patient, I'm just gonna continue doing my thing, business as usual, and, and we'll, it'll be fine. This is, this is terrifying. For the people of Israel, this is not comforting. This is absolutely terrifying. I, I think about it like an earthly judge. For an earthly judge um, to come to the um, to come to a crime, and we have this perfect judge. Listen to the victim and the victim's family. That's wonderful, wonderful news. They're not forgotten. The wrongdoing is not just going to be swept under the rug. This is great news. But here's the thing: for a guilty criminal, that means justice will be served. That means that your wrongdoing will not be swept under the rug. And that leads to this, to this terror, knowing that God is just. And this leads to the next statement. And I think this is the most difficult statement in the entire text. In the entire text. Verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Uh, the pride of Jacob, if you remember, by the way, he's sworn already in chapter 4 to his holiness. He's sworn already by himself in uh, chapter 6. Here he swears to the pride of Jacob. Most likely this is a reference back to himself. Uh, the pride of Jacob, meaning the Lord, the God of Jacob, the pride in that sense. In other words, God is swearing here by himself, by his character, by his own work. And what does he swear? He says, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. As I said, it might be the most difficult line of all of, in all of Amos. And yet it's not unique to Amos. You don't have to turn with me here, but Amos has a contemporary, someone doing a ministry right alongside of him, um, another prophet ministering to the same people, same time, and delivering the same message, our man Hosea, who says the same thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, the sacrifice meet and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them, and now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. He says it again in, in chapter 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves. Listen to what he says. He will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. God is saying loud and clear, I will remember Israel. I will not forget Israel. This is going right back to the fact that our God is perfectly just. If you go back to this idea of an earthly judge, it's like the judge is looking at the victims and the victims' families and saying, I will not forget. You're not forgotten. 
I will make this right. And at the same time, looking at the guilty criminal saying, I will not forget because I am just. I am holy all the time. Sin will not be swept under the rug. God being just means that our God remembers, in other words. And then we look at verse 8. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I find this such a powerful text because if you think about it, it was once the people of Israel that were in slavery in Egypt who were on the bottom of the, 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 the pile getting abused and trampled on. It was once them who were slaves. It was once them who cried out for the day of the Lord where God would deliver them. It was once them who were saying, in the midst of injustice, our God will deliver us. It was once them. And now that has been flipped upside down, hasn't it? And now it is the people of Israel who were the ones abusing, taking advantage of, trampling, and the day of the Lord is coming, not to deliver them from injustice, but to bring justice upon them. Totally switch this upside down. If you, if you look at this, and, and as we read the final verses, I want you to think about this with me again. We were talking about at the beginning, it often takes a wake-up call, right, to rock bottom to kind of snap us out of our death march. Well, unfortunately, the people do not hear that. They do not hear the wake-up call. And the end church has come. The judge is in session. The time has come. The fruit is in the basket. And here's the description of what we're given in our last verse this morning, verse 10. I will turn your feast into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning, the mourning of an only, for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. In other words, church, there is coming a day when there's no more business as usual. There's no more just, just carry on and we'll, we'll, we'll make it. No more. There's coming a day when we will give an account. And see, the people of Israel were getting this message directly from God in the midst of a time of prosperity and comfort. They're like, well, life's pretty good right now, God. They had big houses, comfortable couches. We've read about them. Their feasts, their abundance, and yet God's word warns them that there's a time coming when all of that is done. Prosperity is done. Security is done. All of it is done. The day is coming for the people of Israel. We know through history, they did not listen. They did not change. We know through history, they continued in their ways. Business as usual, things did not change. We also know through history that every word that Amos spoke came true. We know that. We know roughly 30 years after Amos delivers this, it happened. We know that. And so with this, I I, want to ask us, what about us? Will we be different? Will, will we listen? Will we hear? Will we change? In fact, I want to do my best to show us how similar we are to the people of Israel and Amos. I want to do my best to show us how good the shoe fits. 
If you think about it, Amos's message here was loud and clear to the people. Open your eyes. The, the day of the Lord is coming. Open your ears. And yet the people were receiving this message as they were just living their lives, enjoying their stuff, and thinking, nah, we're fine. Nah, we're good. We got our security. We got our stuff. We got our lives. We got our luxuries, our comforts. We're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. And Amos says, the day of the Lord is coming, and it's here. And guess what? It's going to pierce through all of that stuff. All that stuff's going to be done. And it's going to bring business as usual to a grinding, complete full stop. That day is coming. That day is coming. And as we said, it's exactly what happened. And here's the crazy thing. Um, even though the people of Israel were given his word, they knew it. They were given prophets, and they, they heard them, and they were... They still had their temples. They still sang their songs. They still went through the motions. And they still lived in kind of that, they honored sacrifices and the Sabbath by closing their shops. Even though they had the trappings of God's people still, they didn't hear, they didn't believe, they didn't change. Instead, they ignored it. They ignored the word of God, trying to keep up the image of the people of God, saying we're God's chosen people, right? Right? But the day of the Lord did come, and justice and righteousness did roll, and the charade did come to an end. And, and here is where it's not that hard to see the similarity. As we put ourselves in these shoes, Amos' message, guess what? It's just the same. It's loud and clear. Open your eyes, open your ears. The day of the Lord is coming. And yet, we like the people of Israel often, we have our lives, and we think, now nah, I'll, I'll be fine. Got our stuff, got our security. Uh, got our luxuries and comforts, we're gonna be fine. And yet Amos says loud and clear, the day of the Lord is coming and it's gonna pierce through all of that, bringing it to a grinding full stop. Same message. And the crazy thing is just like the people of Israel, we are given this and it's not just Amos. It's, it's the, the rest of the word of God that tells us the day of the Lord is coming, tells us our God is just. We know it, we know what God has said and yet like the people of Israel, we still have our church services. We still gather and we still sing and we still, um, we don't honor the Sabbath like they did unless you work at Chick-fil-A, but um, that's about it. Uh, but outside of that, many of us, we still have the trappings of God's stuff, like we'll check the box of Christian in any survey we take. But the question is, Will we listen? Will we hear? Will we truly believe this? And church, will we change? That's the question. And, and, or will we, like the people of Israel, ignore this and try to continue on business as usual? In other words, we know the day of the Lord is coming. Will we choose to live our lives, though, like it'll never get here? Like it'll never come? If we remember the day of the Lord, what it is, it's that promised day, and it's this already but not yet thing. And what I mean by this is, is already, meaning we look back on when God brought the day of the Lord in the, the lives of the people of Amos. We look back on that. But it's not just that, because it's a not yet thing in that we look forward to the moment, that day, when Christ will return and when he will bring justice. We look forward to that day, and in this way, we are in the same shoes as the people of Israel, the same shoes. They fit really well, and listen, the question for us is, is what does it look like for us to live in light of the coming of the day of the Lord? What does it look like 
knowing that the day of the Lord is coming? How do we live our lives in light of that? And there are two things here that I want to give that is true for all people everywhere, no matter who you are, no matter what. Two things that are absolutely true. The first is repent. Okay, repent. It would have been absolutely foolish for the people of God to be given the word of God in Amos and to say, nah, we're not that bad. To try to justify themselves or downplay their own sin, we're not that bad. Church, it's equally foolish for us to downplay our own sin and be like, nah, we're not that bad. We're not as bad as them. We're, we're fine. It's equally foolish. So when I say repent, what I mean is we don't try to justify ourselves. We don't try to ignore this. We don't try to get out of the moment of conviction so that we can get back to the normal life that starts on Monday. Instead, we stop, we confess, and we repent. We take the sin of our heart and life and we come open-handed before the Lord with it. We repent. Um, I've heard it compared to Google Maps, whatever map service you use on your device, um, where when you miss your turn, and it annoys you to death, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, right? Have you been there? Repentance is a lot like that. See, one part of repentance is saying, yep, I missed my turn. I'm going the wrong way. That's one part of it. It's confessing I'm going the wrong way. But it can't stop there because the next part is actually stopping and turning around. The turning around, the U-turn. Repentance is the full thing confessing, I'm going the wrong way, and then actually turning around and, and, and heading back. That's repentance. But here's the thing. Repentance is only possible in and through Jesus Christ, which leads to the second thing, and that is we repent and look to Christ. Repent and look to Christ. And I know that I say this a lot, and I'm not gonna apologize for that. Uh, we say a lot here at Stoneic Bible Church, we're a one-trick pony. Like, that's what we got. So we're going to preach this a lot. But here's the thing. Um, it, it, it applies, as we look at this, to look to Christ. And I want to compare this to the words of Paul in Romans. You don't have to turn with me here. I'm going to put them up here. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look to Christ. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He passed over former sins. Praise God for that. We look to Christ. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, please listen to this, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. We look to Christ because Christ is the just justifier. This is so huge. This means that Christ is just. He's, our God is perfect, righteous, perfectly all the time. And that now Christ, the just, is now the justifier of his people. What this means is, is that only Christ can do both, bring justice and make us just. The point of the gospel is not that sin no longer matters. Praise God. Sin doesn't matter anymore. Or that God now is a little less cranky and he's okay with more of your sin than he was back then. That's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is not that God is in Christ just goes, whoop, 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 sweeps sin under the rug. That's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that Christ is the just justifier. Amen. 
that Christ, that our sin still matters. It still is gross as it's ever been. The gospel says God hates sin because he's perfect and just. So we look to Christ who took our sin and gave us his righteousness. We look to Christ. Again, as this begins, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Church, we look to Christ. Hear me. The day of the Lord, just like for the people of Israel and Amos, the day of the Lord is coming. What are we to do about it? We are to repent and we are to look to Christ. Repent and look to Christ. And, and if you hear nothing else, hear me. When we do repent and look to Jesus, when we do, we can stand in complete confidence that Christ has done the work and that we are justified in him. We can stand in complete confidence knowing that when Christ returns on the day of the Lord, that we have been justified in Christ. Amen. Complete confidence. I gave that quote at the beginning. I'll put it back up here. Um, we change our behavior when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. That's a good quote. applies to a lot of things. But it doesn't quite capture the full picture of what gospel change looks like. See, we can suffer quite a bit and still be just as stubborn in our sin as ever. Um, in fact, the pain of the people in Amos was just on display here, and yet they did not change. I would argue for a, a slightly different picture of what gospel change really looks like. See, we change our behavior when we see the glory, the goodness, and the kindness, and the grace of our God in Christ. That's when we change our behavior, when our hearts are changed, when the Holy Spirit transforms us, seals us for eternity in Christ. Gospel change is an inside-out change. Inside-out. Not only behavioral change. I, my goal is not that you're well-behaved heathens. That's not the goal. That's legalism. It's not the gospel. The goal is heart change, and heart change is only possible through the power of God. And so, in other words, gospel change is not a response to pain. It's a, ultimately a response to his glory. In other words, it's not changing on our own power where we just say, be better, be better, be better, be better, be better. That's not a picture of the, of the Christian life. We change by the power of God, the kindness of God. Scripture says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. We change when we see that. And so I want to argue for a different definition. So gospel change is not changing behavior when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Instead, this is a clunky definition, but I'm just going to put it up here anyway. It's when our heads, hearts, and hands are changed by the power of God as we see the glory, kindness, and grace of our God through Christ. That is gospel change. Hear me. If God uses pain to get you to see his glory and grace, then praise God. So be it. But it's not the pain that is changing you. It's the glory and the grace of God as we see it that changes us. If God uses suffering and struggle, or even if God uses the knowledge of the coming of the day of the Lord to bring about change, 
to see the glory of Christ, then so be it. If you and I want real and lasting change, church, we need to repent and we need to look to Christ. Repent and look to Christ. Not just today, not just right now in this moment, on your Sunday, but on your Monday, and then on your Tuesday, and then on your Wednesday, and Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. All of it, repent and look to Christ. For those of you who have followed Jesus for a long time, repent and look to Christ. For those of you who have never placed your trust and faith in Christ, repent and look to Christ. There is one call in light of the coming of the day of the Lord. There is one hope, one call, repent and look to Christ. This is our call. This will be my sermon until the day Jesus comes back. It's as Luke says in Acts 4.12. We read this verse in our worship, and I want to finish our time with it today. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Look to Christ.